everyone. Welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chong. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well wherever you are. The past week has been quite a roller coaster with the George Floyd trial finally coming to a close. And while the outcome was quite unexpected and definitely a step forward, I also am wary institutions are already forgetting how much more work there needs to be done. As always, the question is where do we go from here and what else can we do? Only time will tell. So yeah. We'll see. But for today, I am interviewing Dr. Yuan De Pierce, a neuroscientist and science communicator. Born and bred in North London, Yuan De got her PhD from the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience at King's College London, and is now a postdoctoral fellow at the Lundquist Institute at Harbour UCLA. Her research interests focus on rare genetic disorders of the brain and stem cell therapy. I first learned about Yuande through a show she curated me in at Naval LA, where she sits on the programming committee. I also watched some of the programming related to the exhibition, which focused on the impact of genomic studies on three aspects of identity, race, gender, and politics. Yuande also hosts a few monthly radio shows and podcasts, such as Sound Science, Inside Biotech, and First Fridays for the Natural History Museum LA. On top of Yuande's prolific output as a podcaster, Yuande writes for Massive, an online science publication. For all these reasons, I was excited to finally talk to Yuande about her scientific work, her podcasting work, and her special science experiment with John Legend. As always, stay safe and healthy, and I hope you enjoy this. No, well, we were teasing. I really loved it. So it's all full circle. That's oh, thanks so much. Um, Yeah, so I mean, I think one of the things that um, you know, the first thing I was kind of thinking about was, you know, you do so many things, right? So you host a radio show slash podcast called Sound Science on Dub Lab. You also host Inside Biotech. You are also, uh, I think, briefly, you also had another podcast for First Friday Connected with the Natural History Museum in LA. You're also a contributor to Massive Science, an online publication, and you're also a board member to Naval, uh, which we'll talk about in a bit more. Um, but how do you have all the time to do all of this? Not to mention your job. That is a good question. I was actually talking about this with my partner. So at the moment, I'm at a place where I feel like I need to focus on more time abundance. And so I've intentionally stopped saying yes to opportunities or yeah. I've tried to force my brain because I keep seeing projects everywhere and I said to him I realized that actually the less I do the <laughs> the less productive I am in general so doing more actually allows me to do more which is hard to believe but somehow it just helps me just to keep really productive and when I stop that's when I get really lazy. (laughs) It actually helps to do a lot. But um, I think I'm just super interested in collaboration. So that for me is quite energizing. So any opportunities that I see to collaborate, I find energy in that. So Yeah, yeah. So did you have a stressful day? Did you did you do a lot of things today? Today was 
not too stressful. So we are back in the lab full time. So during um, the pandemic, most of last year, we were working from home. So a lot of my work was actually just computer space and analysis. And now I'm back in the lab catching up on experiments. So it was one of those experiments where you have sort of periods of not really doing very much. So I had a couple of two hour periods that sort of slowed down the pace of the day. And in those times, at those time points, I was able to get a few things done. So it was busy, but it didn't feel too busy. It was a good day. That's good. And then, and it's the Western LA light is still out. I can see. So it makes so much difference. (laughs) Even though I complain about losing an hour, it actually does feel really nice to drive home yeah, yeah, in the yeah. light. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember. I, so I, I noticed you're the, at least the place that you're working at, at the Lundquist Institute, that's in Torrance, right? Right. Yeah. It's quite the commute for me. <laughs> well, I lived in LA for two years and my first job was in Torrance actually. So I made, I made I that commute for, uh, for a year or eight, eight months, nine months until I was like, this is a lot of driving. And I was trying to find a job closer to, to Koreatown. Yeah, well, well, so you were in Koreatown. Yeah. That is quite a commute with the traffic. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah. quite lucky because I'm usually, if I go at the right time, I actually miss the traffic and it's just around downtown. Uh, yeah, yeah. Traffic, but other yeah. than that, it's actually okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, so I mean, before we move on, I was, um, I wanted to quickly hear a bit about your origin story. You know, where you grew up, and how did you end up as a neuroscientist and podcaster, and all the other wonderful things that you do. Sure. Well, um, okay. So where did it all start? So I'm from London originally, and I grew up in London. My parents are Nigerian. And so I spent a lot of time in in London, but I went to school actually just outside London in the countryside. Okay. And I guess my journey into neuroscience started in quite a typical way for, I think, a lot of children of immigrant parents, which is with a Nigerian culture, education and professionalism is really highly regarded. Mm-hmm. So. It was medicine or uh, being an accountant or a lawyer or something that had vocation so that you would have that security. That was really important to my mum. So I was interested in medicine at first, actually, because that kind of fits a lot of boxes for me in terms of pleasing my mum, if I'm honest, because, I mean, medicine is an awesome career, but the more I sort of journeyed along the path that you need to, to be able to study medicine, the more I realized that I actually liked the more academic side of science. Mm. And I was interested in sort of understanding how the body works just on a a really sort of academic level, Mm -hmm. as opposed to within a clinical setting. Yeah. So that pretty much was the catalyst to me getting more and more into science because there are required subjects that you have to take in order to study medicine. So at school, I was actually really bad in science. I found it really hard. And now I look back and I realize what a difference it makes to have the right kind of teacher. But back then, there was such a barrier to it that I had to push through so that I could do medicine. So I kept doing that. And I got to university. I managed to get into university and I didn't get on to my medicine course because I didn't get the marks I needed so Uh I decided that I would do a little detour and an undergraduate degree in human biology 
Okay. And then I would do graduate medicine. So you could do a degree and then you could go back to medicine. Uh, but then ironically, yeah. So ironically, as soon as I started doing that course, I completely changed my approach to science. And that's when I really found a passion for it. And then just through the different modules that are available, I explored all areas of science and landed in neuroscience, which really creates my interest and then that led me to do the masters and then from the masters it's kind of a rabbit hole the more you go into neuroscience the more you you find that's so interesting and that's how I got into it yeah yeah and and your parents were they born also in London or they came from Nigeria and they came from Nigeria (laughs) yeah (laughs) so yeah they both came from Nigeria my dad spent a lot more time in Nigeria but my mum she moved over to study as well when she was younger and pretty much uh, just stayed. Oh, nice. And uh, yeah, and then was your PhD what you're currently working on now? I understand that your, your PhD was on like stem cell mediated gene therapy. And I'm not sure how it kind of transitioned or maybe you're doing continually studying the same thing. Yeah, well, I studied rare diseases. It's rare childhood brain diseases as part of my PhD. So I focused on a genetic rare childhood brain disease called Batten disease uh-huh. and whether we could develop a, a gene therapy to treat it but it's such a, a niche field that the further into it you go yeah so it kind of leads to other areas of study within so my this is my first postdoc and I'm in my fifth year now and it's a different disease but it's part of a similar group of diseases that have the same issue which is that there is a gene that codes for an enzyme that breaks down something in lysosomes which are the parts of the cell that break up waste and as a result things build up in the cell and that causes havoc specifically for brain cells but it it happens all over the body but the brain is less able to cope with that Uh so because it's the similar mechanisms I'm now focusing on stem cell therapy as opposed to gene therapy in order to treat a different childhood brain disease. So it's all within the same field, but a different disease and a different approach. Okay. So as someone who doesn't know a lot of this, is what's the difference between gene therapy and stem cell therapy? So with gene therapy, gene, so gene therapy is a way of correcting a genetic mutation. So a lot of diseases are caused by a mutation in a single gene, which mm-hmm. is crazy because it, it codes for one protein and missing that one protein yeah, yeah. oftentimes you don't even know what the protein does but it, it causes a lot of problems so because we know the human genome you can target specific genes so with gene therapy you can use let's say a virus for example but uh, a virus that isn't harmful to deliver the gene of interest that is missing yeah. to a person and then that can therefore correct that missing gene and provide that protein. So with stem cells, what you're doing is sometimes a mixture of both. So sometimes you're taking cells and you're correcting the gene defect in the cells. Mm -hmm. And then you're reintroducing the cells and cells back into Uh, the person Mm. so that the cell can basically act as a a long-term source of that gene and the protein that it makes. Yeah. So a lot of this is preclinical. So for the stem cell research we do, ideally where we want to get to is for someone suffering with the disease that I work on, Sanfilippo syndrome, mm-hmm. we would be able to take, let's say, their skin cells 
and reprogram them back into stem cells, which can then become any cell of the body. Mm-hmm. And when you have that cell, the cell from that person is going to still have that genetic mutation. So you could correct it using, for example, CRISPR gene editing, which is like a way of targeting specific genes and replacing it with a functional copy. And then you could take that cell that's now corrected and reintroduce it back into the person. I see. So in the brain, the whole brain would be full of cells that don't have the genes, but there would be a population of cells that do have the right gene. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it, makes, it makes sense in the abstract. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so stem cell, though, is very targeted, right? Because it's specific to each person's cell. So you, it's, you can't really release... Um, can you scale this up or that's a challenge it's a really good question because scaling it up is the challenge so a lot of stem cell transplantations when you put the cells in a human brain they sort of they don't survive or they disappear or they don't go to the right place and so there are loads of challenges that we're working that we're up against but theoretically it does have a lot of power. Yeah, yeah. But it's really not there yet. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's really fascinating. Um, you know, and I, I ask these questions because I, when I listen to your podcast, what I really like is the podcast. I guess I'm specifically talking about sound science, and how you kind of foreground your podcast with an introduction to a certain topic about how your brain reacts to some outside stimuli. Mostly, I guess, love is music. Um, and then also all these different things such as grief and stress. So, you know, I really love that part about it. And I love how you are, I think you call yourself a science communicator. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about this in terms of, you know, communication and thinking about how our brains kind of react, I was curious, I guess, this idea of being a science communicator, how did you start thinking about that, right? How did you start come across this idea that, oh, I need to find a way to you know, explain science in a way that can reach more people? Like, where did that initiative come from, from you? It came from my friends, honestly. So I don't have very many science friends. I can shout out to you so that they don't feel like I'm not including them. But the (laughs) majority of my friends are creative. And I don't know if that's happened by accident. I don't think it's an accident. So I've always had an affinity towards creative people and creative things and so amongst my friendship group no one had any idea what I was working on or what I was doing or (laughs) what happened in the lab but they knew I was a neuroscientist so my friends would ask me questions about things and I would try and explain them and I would lose them almost immediately (laughs) and to me it would seem really straightforward like no this is what I'm explaining and I would use scientific language and I was used to presenting my work in a particular way within an academic setting so that felt quite natural for me but when I tried to engage in conversation it was a shame that I would lose people so I remember for example being at a dinner party once with a friend and their family and I think when you say that you study neuroscience or you're a neuroscientist people get really excited because the brain is so fascinating and people are interested in it so people would always want to know about um, consciousness so they would want to know about the effects of psychedelic drugs yeah, they would yeah. want to know about these things that really are super interesting and I would start to try and explain it and then I would lose that mm. and I think that that's a shame because 
science really is so interesting and so relevant for everyone that I think you, you have a response. I feel like I have a responsibility to make sure that that knowledge is shared with people because it affects them. So learning how to talk about science in a way that engages people and in a way that also fosters conversation that informs my own practice and how in which I go about finding scientific answers yeah. by having conversations with people has really motivated me to explore science communication more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think we can see this is even more relevant in today's age with, you know, lots of people trying to just do something as basic as vaccination and all the misinformation. It couldn't be a more exemplary year. This is the perfect example, I think, of how important science communication is because it informs your decisions. It can be really critical and there's so much misinformation that, you know, we need people need to have agency around understanding science yeah i mean and like you know moving forward after all this happened is this something that uh, scientists are talking more about uh, you know in terms of combating it like you know sometimes when i see the situation i'm like i don't even know how to solve this problem i think a lot of it is to do with transparency in how science is done and scientific research and i think there was quite a lot of focus on the difference between or the importance of peer review and a lot of the early data that was coming out being pre-peer reviewed, so it hadn't been gone through those processes. And having that transparency is really important. I think transparency and understanding how funding works, understanding how the impact factor of a journal, which is just um, a way of, in a way, ranking journals and what impact do they have, impact factor all comes into play. So I think an understanding of that is really important. And what's been interesting about the last year is that the science has been moving so quickly that it's hard for even myself as a scientist to keep up with that and to follow it. And the data has just been, we're still gathering data. We still don't know, even as we're getting vaccinated, that data is coming out in real time. You have your clinical study, which gives you an indication of safety and efficacy. But how that vaccine is having an impact on the population, it's it's happening now. So I think it's a really unique time where it's not just the general, you know, just the general public who may feel confused about the science, but actually within the science community, it's a really unique time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so I noticed... You know, in terms of also, I was curious, you came to L.A. in 2016. Was this primarily for your Lundquist Institute job? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I had just finished my Ph.D. thesis and had handed that in. And when I was in, <laughs> it, was, it was like one of the most difficult periods of my life. And there was one particular day that was really bad. And I decided I was going to just book a ticket to L.A. to Oh, oh! You came here for you came there first. I did oh. for, for a holiday. Yeah, okay. I was like, I'm gonna go to LA as soon as I've handed in. So I booked a ticket. A couple of friends were already in LA, and that was about two months out before handing in my thesis. Uh-huh. So I got through it, handed in my thesis, and then in January of 2016, I had booked this ticket to LA, came to LA, and just spent three weeks maybe a month here and while I was here I visited the Lundquist Institute and in I don't know at the time I wasn't really planning on moving to LA I just thought it would be nice to network and make some connections 
And then when I went back to the UK after my holiday, it turned out that they had funding for a research project. So I applied pretty quickly and it happened super fast. And they offered me the position. And then I had a few months to get myself together, apply for the visa. And then by September, I was living in LA and I had no idea that that was what I was going to do. But wow. I had to just say yes. <laughs> do you like LA? I love LA so yeah. much. I love it. It's still fine. I still find it just the novelty of it's so obvious, but just the weather and the proximity to such beautiful nature. Yeah, yeah. Is almost enough for me. And I love London and I always love London. It's kind of in my being at this point, but the lifestyle here is so different that I'm still enjoying the no- novelty of that. And yeah, yeah. obviously, LA has its problems and its issues, but. It's definitely a better city for my well-being, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, that's good. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, L.A. promotes this sort of, you know, personal space as a very important part, I think, of L.A. culture. And also celebrities. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, one thing I was really wanted to talk to you about is how you met John Legend on that. (laughs) The music on my mind. uh, For those of you who don't know... um, Yawande was able to measure John Legend's heartbeat while he was running. And I think the funniest part about it, you were like basically telling John Legend, like, you have to run. And you're just like... <laughs> <laughs> it was like he was, he, was, he was being punished for something. I don't know. Like... He, was, he, was so, he was great about that. I mean, I don't know how much I would want to sweat it out. <laughs> um, but he was really into the science and really willing to engage with the demonstration. That was a really exciting project with Headspace and I had previously done a couple of videos where Headspace in app they have Uh, a series called The Wake Up where each morning there is like a little video um, on the app and I did a couple one on meditation in the brain and the Uh other one on exercise and the impact on the brain and then after doing that project with them they were working on this series, a six-part series with John Legend about how music impacts our lives, They're focusing on memory, fitness, and stress, which were the episodes I did, and then yeah. another neuroscientist who focused on focus and sleep and emotion. Mm. So between us, we covered all of those areas, but working with him was awesome because, I mean, I love music and being able to speak to someone who's such a talent. Yeah, yeah. with a music and share science with them and think about it in a different way it was really cool yeah 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 I kind of laughed you know the whole time I was watching it was, it was really nice to see <laughs> yeah it was, it was really fun he was uh, I think my, my favorite one I think was the one on stress uh-huh. which was him with a VR headset on oh, okay yeah yeah at the top of this huge building <laughs> and then he had to walk this plank in a VR headset <laughs> yeah. which is so effective and it, it was about his stress and where the music can impact uh, the stress levels yeah yeah and it was kind of fun watching him freak out about that <laughs> yeah that was just really awesome like I don't think I've ever met anyone that famous <laughs> me neither <laughs> uh, apart from him. yeah apart from him um, so yeah, so I guess circling back, you were, you were talking a lot about how most of your communities or the people that you hang out with are related to the arts. And so I was curious, maybe more if you could talk a bit about that. I know, 
I, I mean, I, you don't talk too much about it, but I saw you had a multi-platform narrative called Naughty Gene. Then also, I know your interest in Naval as a board member. Um, and again, for those of you who are listening, I first learned and met Yuande because of a events, a culture, I'm not sure what they call it, a talk, a weekend where you gathered a bunch of people to show art and have a discussion about our DNA. And uh, yeah, so I was just curious more about your interest in the arts and how you think it's important and relevant to, you know, storytelling and science. Yeah, I mean, so the naughty gene, that's such a, I just had a flashback, that was my first uh, exploration into art and science, actually. And it was a, it was an initiative run by the Tribeca Film School called Story Matter as part of a series of hackathons that they were doing at the time. And so I applied for that because I wanted to see how I could combine art and science in a way by working with um, other creatives. Yeah. So that was a prototype for what would be an interactive gaming experience. And okay. it was based on my research at the time, which was about this gene that causes a disease called Batten's disease. Yeah. And it was about the decision-making process in finding treatment as a scientist, as a parent of a child with this disease, as a child with the disease, yeah. which was then picked up by an organization that is a charity that works with families people who suffer from disease but yeah that was really interesting because there was a director a storyteller a composer a technologist and a designer and so working with those people in that way in that interdisciplinary way was a really good learning experience for us and then eventually it was presented at CERN where the physics CERN in Geneva as part of their they have um a film festival each year called Cine Globe. Okay. And then that, once I had a taste for that, that's kind of where things started rolling. And I realized that's the space that I wanted to exist in. And I think the reason for that is just because in having an interdisciplinary approach to science ultimately leads to asking better questions that are more relevant for people. I think one thing that happens within academia that I've found from personal experience is that you really do end up focusing or being quite narrow-minded in your view of a particular topic mm-hmm. and having this interdisciplinary approach really pulls you out of that and helps inform the questions that you're asking mm-hmm. so I really love working with creators because I think science and art are quite similar in ways that aren't immediately obvious but science is actually very creative both are about questions and finding ways finding answers to those questions and by sort of combining them, I think that they can elevate each other. Yeah. So I don't mean necessarily just have to be a bio artist to be interested in science as a practice. And I think as a scientist, working with artists helps you to think differently about the science that you're doing. Yeah. So a lot of the conversations I've had have been very revealing because a very simple, obvious question will be one that I may not have thought of. And I wouldn't have thought of it because I'm thinking too micro and someone else from a different background will just ask me this question and it completely changed my thinking about it. So after Tribeca, I I guess you were asking about Naval. Yeah. Before you get into Naval, just just kind of curious, like, so what would be a quick example of someone who asked you a question that you weren't thinking about as a scientist that was sort of outside your field that kind of made you rethink something? Um, a good example would be one of the most 
interesting ways in which I've been challenged when I think about neuroscience is actually understanding how different parts of the brain work and which parts are responsible. Mm-hmm. Because I focus a lot on specific regions, but then considering questions about, well, how does nature impact the brain allows me to then think about the different structures in the brain that are involved in that and how they relate together rather than thinking about the brain in isolation. And when I was studying my PhD, I remember I was working on mouse brain tissue and there's this area called the striatum. And I was always working on the striatum, the striatum and thinking about the striatum, but you know, I had never really thought about what what it does or what its importance uh-huh. is or and then I was just speaking to someone who wasn't a scientist and they were asking about that and it really made me think about the different areas of the brain and what they actually do and how they relate to each other uh-huh. in different ways so that's one way I am I think that it's kind of challenged my way of thinking of the brain as a whole for navel I was really excited when I discovered navel it was one of the first places I discovered when I was in LA that made me really feel at home and comfortable uh-huh. and it's a cultural um, organization it has it used to when we were open it used to do lots of different events that I would attend and I found out that they had a programming committee or uh, you could apply to be on the programming committee and at that time I was interested in trying to see if I could work with artists within LA in a way that would allow me to explore science and at the time I was focusing on genetics and genomics which is what I work on and so I applied for that and then ended up on the programming committee with five others um, from different backgrounds and we were each responsible for curating a program so the program you were involved with the 0.1% which was all about how genomics informs identity and I really wanted it to be a combination of things so I really wanted it to involve an exhibition Mm -hmm. interpreting questions through art or or working with artists who are exploring questions around genomics but also a talk which was with Aaron Panofsky and Terence Keel and then also a zine which would feature interviews and a number of things so that project was another really good learning opportunity because so I knew that I wanted to do an exhibition. I knew I wanted to have artists give their perspective on this topic. But actually curating that is quite a challenge because I mean, just asking you when you applied for the open call, how I mean, what were your motivations for submitting your work? I guess like most things in art, you, you just, a lot of things are word of mouth or, or I guess mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of times find things on the internet. And I happen to know Amanda mm-hmm. who, who works at Naval. And so she was in Berlin at the time and she told me about it. So um, she thought that would be a good fit. So I applied. I thought, you know, the the thesis of the show or, or the open call, the description of it, you know, talking about, you know, our relationship to um, genetics and sort of thing was sort of interesting. I, I had my hesitation because I... I was like, I don't know, Amanda, my work isn't that scientific. I'm not like, a, I don't, I don't go too deep into the factual sort of like, I think of my videos as these stream of consciousness thoughts that kind of, kind of piece together and try to dig at this from a very, you know, different angle. So, but Amanda's like, oh no, we're not looking for super scientific things. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll try. And yeah. And then. And then I kept getting the email, so I, I ordered the zine. But sadly, I was, you know, in Berlin, and then I got my job in China, so I had it shipped to my parents' house. So I haven't had a chance to look at the zine, but I have a copy at my home. And um, yeah, and then I saw the 
the lecture that you kind of hosted as part of the events, which was, I thought, really interesting, talking about genetics and the construct of it and also, you know, how, you know, all these ideas are sort of human constructs. And so they're only as objective as the humans who are creating it. We can think of AI, you know, we can think of the examples that were given in terms of like France. I think that Darren Skeel and Aaron Pronofsky were talking about sort of like, hundred years ago, France was not the France we think of, right? And so these categories are, you know, socially constructed, just like this idea of, you know, the, the diseases, I forgot, what was it? Sick, sickle cell disease, right? Mm-hmm. Pulling, yeah. from, pulling from Africa, but then how most of the people taken from Africa forcefully into America happen to be just from one region. And so if we don't think about it, you know, we can come to these conclusions without looking at the broader picture. And so, yeah, I was really interested in that whole programming. It was, well, I'm so glad to hear that. And the fact that you hesitated about how much scientific detail your work involves, I'm glad that you submitted in spite of that, because really, I think it's about engagement as well and inspiration for thinking about these questions, not necessarily the, I mean, some of the artists did focus on science, like the scientific concepts themselves. So it was quite varied. But I think that what I like about science communication is it engages audiences that don't necessarily think that science, a particular scientific topic is for them. Yeah. But actually, when you just look at it from a different perspective, it can inspire an interest. A lot of science, I think, can be... Unless you, unless it's directly relevant in a way that you're aware of, I think it can be quite ostracizing or there's a barrier to it. So almost you don't know how interesting it is because it's just, it's on first look, it is just uninteresting. But actually, if you get past that, you see all of the stuff that might be of interest to you. And I think that exploring questions through art is a really good way of inspiring people I think to be interested in scientific topics and questions and it's important I think that we're all involved in the kind of research we do especially around things like genomics which affects us all in ways that we might not be aware of with the genetic testing for example a lot of people aren't even aware that you don't have to necessarily take a genetic test yourself if a cousin has yeah you know a lot of your information is already out there and you know what you know what say do you have in that and what how does that affect you or what are your interests in that so yeah. I think it's important to engage people in scientific conversations in a way that is appealing and inspiring for them yeah yeah I try I try my best I mean I, I made a piece about it with my dad and my dad's a scientist and I interviewed him and my dad was like well I'm a scientist so you know I I try my best but, you know, and so there's like, there's definitely like sometimes a barrier in terms of his understanding of the world and, and mine, but yeah. yeah. Wow. That's awesome that your dad's actually is a scientist. And I mean, even, yeah, I can relate to that with my mom. She's not a scientist and I'm often trying to engage her and she just has, is not a scientific mind, she's a very creative mind, but it's, it's nice because it, it forces you to think about communicating in a different way. Like how do you find those areas of commonality? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then also in terms of, you know, making it more accessible. I mean, I was also thinking, and since we're talking about, you know, genomics and, you know, the, the social impact of it, you know, I was also thinking in terms of, 
uh, you know, you talking about race and and identity within the STEM environment. I heard mm-hmm. your your talk with Chantel Oconquo, and yeah, I'm curious how you know you kind of tie that in to Navo and also your own podcast based on those programmings, and you know, it is a very important part of science communication, right? Yeah, I mean, you can't really as a black person you can't really separate the two it's sort of just inherent in your in your being and yeah in terms of accessibility to science I think I just seek out opportunities through collaboration Mm. to improve accessibility and so that's for example the natural history museum it's an that was an event that they do called First Fridays, yeah. which was an in-person event at the museum, which was awesome, where you would actually go late on a Friday night, they would, leave, they would keep the museum open late, and there would be talks and bands and DJs and music and drinks, and it was a really good time. And then during COVID, obviously couldn't do that anymore, so it went online. Mm-hmm. And so I was a host and a moderator for the first two months, the first one was Solace and Science around COVID-19, sort of, and topic and then the second was home and habitat and they did give me the opportunity to actually suggest panelists so I chose a psychologist called Dr. Jennifer Mullen uh, who is the founder of Decolonizing Therapy and she's absolutely awesome and amazing and also Evelyn Escobar Thomas who founded Hike Club which is a women ex um, intersectional hiking Mm. club and I jumped at the opportunity to work with those two people because it was an opportunity to um, really center, you know, um, BIPOC voices. So in that way, I think I can sort of improve um, how science is sort of disseminated and the conversations that are happening around science. And then directly in my work, it can be frustrating because, yeah, there's still a lot of work to be done. As on the podcast with um, Dr. Chantal Aconqua, the frustration there is that within academia, it's actually quite shocking how so racism can be so it's so institutionalized that people don't realize that until something happens like the uprisings last year. Yeah, yeah. And then you're really confronted with it. So me personally, I was kind of shocked how bad it kind of actually was within my own immediate circle, like we do experience microaggressions all the time, but then also those bigger things are, are definitely present. So yeah, it, it's something that comes up in lots of different areas for me um, in my work directly, but also in the way I'm intentional about the work that I do. And that's part of the reason why I was drawn to somewhere like Naval and wanted to be on the board because I wanted to have some impact on the work that Naval does. And it's a cultural space that, it impacts a lot of people and that was important to me. So I was glad that I was able to do that. You know, I think what happened in the past year, I think people are still trying to figure out how to move forward. And I think mm-hmm. just what does it mean to do, to have outreach? What does it mean to offer opportunities and how, like, like you said, they're sort of so ingrained in the institution that sometimes depending on who you are, you don't really like see it as clearly or think about it uh, until it rears its head. And then, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially, yeah. I mean, in academia, just trying to just, <laughs> it's hard enough. So, the thing that really bothers me the most about it is it's hard enough being in academia. So, you obviously, you often don't have that extra energy to educate yeah. um, people and to fight those microaggressions on a daily basis within an already challenging environment. 
And it's just surprising how much work still needs to be done that isn't being done. And it's so very between institutes. I think there are some institutes that are a lot more, have done a lot more of the work to get to a point where the situation is a bit better and some that don't even know that there's a problem. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> it can be frustrating. Uh, yeah. Um, I have one last question for you. So I know your podcast is about sound and science. And mm -hmm. I'm just curious what you think in terms of me in the sense that do you think I'm crazy in the like, <laughs> because I actually I like music and I love listening to music, but my life and my daily life, I tend to prefer silence over music. And so I'm just curious, what does that mean for me in terms of my relationship to music it is I'm just curious to you as a neuroscientist, because if I'm giving it a choice between like, okay, let's walk outside and listen to music or let's walk outside and just listen to this, you know, the wind or just what we call silence, what John Cage probably would call music, uh, I would prefer the the sound of the wind or, or something like that. So I'm just curious, uh, well, you know, how would you analyze that from a scientist perspective? I don't think that's crazy at all. I don't think that's crazy at all. I think that music is the context in which you're listening to music is really important. And we, I mean, music is so taste based and so individual, which is one of the challenges in studying music and its impact on the brain and why there are so many questions that are left unanswered. But to answer that question, I would say that one of the one of the things that we know about music is how much of an emotional inducer it is. Yeah. It can put you in particular brain states and moods. So you have a choice over what sort of mood you might want to be in. So sometimes you might not want to listen. You might love music, but you you through your awareness of how that has an emotional impact on you, it might not be what you're looking for mm. in that moment. Also, music can be distracting and sometimes it can be distracting in a good way. And so, for example, there have been studies looking into how music impacts cognitive performance. And uh, without going into too much detail, sometimes music can take attention, it interferes with your attention, yeah. which might make it harder for you to concentrate. So maybe in that context, music might not be the best. Yeah. way to the best thing that you're looking for but I don't know I guess when you're walking and you're not you want to listen to the wind what is the motivation there and how does it make you feel out of curiosity I guess I just I'm not sure if I prefer I don't know there's a lot of things one is sort of like do I want to do the work to open my phone turn find a music station make sure mm -hmm. I have, make sure I have bluetooth headphones or just a headphone and I'm usually I'm just fine with not going through the work and just listening to the wind. That's usually my motivation. Whereas maybe you could say I'm lazy. I don't, I'm not sure, but I know, I know people will stop what they're doing and set a playlist. So, you know, find a playlist, a soundtrack to do whatever they're doing. So, um, I mean, music is, um, music is one of the few things that activates pretty much your entire brain. Yeah, so yeah. I would say it's not so surprising to choose not to engage in music in particular moments because there's a lot of stimulation going on there that you might not necessarily be up for in that moment. Yeah. I am similar. I prefer to listen to, I love music, but I prefer to listen to podcasts sometimes or just yeah. an audio book yeah, if I'm yeah. doing particular things. Like the music 
almost maybe because you love music so much. Like I love music so much that yeah. <laughs> it's really hard for me to listen to music and not want to dance or move my body. Yeah, yeah. It's very, it can, it, it, you know, it's linked to your memories as well. So it yeah, can yeah. be quite distracting. It's a lot going on. So I don't think it's crazy at all. I think it just shows the power of music, but also the choices that we have and how we engage in music and how we use it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks for your <laughs> diagnosis. <laughs> I think it's fine. Um, yeah. So uh, as we're wrapping up, I was wondering if there's anything that I missed that you would want to talk about, or if you wanted to, you could talk about where people can find you online. You've got, you're like all over the web. So what <laughs> <laughs> um, to talk, I mean, I think we've covered a lot. I don't know if there's anything that I kind of went off on a tangent on that you want to come back to, but a lot of my, I've actually just made a website. So that is available on, I mean, you can check out the website, which is www.uandopierce.com. And I also have an Instagram account where I post all my science related Mm -hmm. stuff, which is at neuro, which is N-Y-E-W-R-O. And then Sound Science Podcast as well. That's at Sound Science Podcast. Uh, and the website is soundsciencepodcast.com. So that's where most things live. And um, yeah, Inside Biotech is another podcast that I've been doing that you mentioned at the beginning, which is all about biotech in the LA landscape. So we just launched it. The organization is called Biotech Connection Los Angeles. And it's an organization that is focused on education and connecting academics with people within industry. Mm-hmm. And so it's a really nice nothing part of people who kind of uh, academics wanting to get into industry, but there's like a, a nice relationship there. And so we started, we just launched a podcast, which focuses on the science behind biotech companies. So it's very much about that sort of scientific storytelling. Yeah. So, so far we've done an episode on a company called Canalysis. So thinking about the cannabis industry and cannabis uh, testing yeah we also did one about genomics in cats so like 23 and me but for cats called base pores and um just did one on my- microalgae as a source of nutrition in food as opposed to the biofuel which is what it's generally known for i think it's known for biofuel you said yeah, okay. so bio, micro, uh, microalgae is really popular uh, in terms of a biofuel source, uh, but actually it's also really good for food and uh, supplements and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that's the, other, that's the other project I'm working on at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> like I said, I'm always impressed. I may, I feel like I'm at that age where I'm like, I'm just struggling to get up in bed some days. <laughs> Oh, I don't be fooled. I feel you. <laughs> and I'm a night owl too, so I tend to, it's not that I'm particularly well, I'm, I'm super efficient or productive. I just, my brain kind of clicks on yeah. late and then I seem to be able to just keep going through the night. So I've tried to stop doing that because sleep is important for the brain, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, hard to, <laughs> it's hard to get up in the morning sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, um, thank you so much, Iwande. Uh, I really enjoyed talking with you. And yeah, I hope to keep hearing more about your podcast, keep listening to all the guests that you're you know, inviting. I haven't really been able to listen to Inside Biotech, but I'll definitely check that out. And yeah, 
Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. I'm really glad that we got the chance to do this. And I love the work you're doing um, with this podcast. So it's an honor to be on it. Yeah. And hopefully I can visit Navo sometime in the future. We'll see. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Well, take care, Yawande. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziwon Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com, or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoy this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.